In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Okay, in this session, we're going to talk about something kind of fun. We're going to talk about Noah's Ark. Because one of the things as I travel, I get questioned about as much as anything else is about Noah's Ark. Was Noah's Ark a real vessel? How do you know it was true? How do you get the animals on the ark? Lots of questions about Noah's Ark. And the thing is, if you come to Kentucky now, you can actually walk through a full-size Noah's Ark. And when you get off the bus, you're going to see something that looks just like that. <laughs> Again, is that Noah's Ark? No. Yes, it is, because the giraffes are sticking out the top. <laughs> Work with me. If the giraffes are not sticking out the top, it's not Noah's Ark. Now, did Noah's Ark have holes in the side? No. Did Noah's Ark have a bunch of cute animals on the deck? No. Did Noah's Ark have a guy with a butterfly net trying to catch a woodpecker? Okay, so I think it's safe to say that perhaps you're a little bit skeptical, so we'll, we'll reject that one. Is that Noah's Ark? No. Did Noah's Ark have a monkey on the porthole? No. I'd like to think so, but probably not. But the giraffes are sticking out the top of this. How many animals can you get on board that boat? Not on board that boat. You can get a few, but you can't get them all on there. Okay, when you see Noah's Ark, let me know. Nope, no takers. All right, next. Any takers? Well, the one in the middle there is one of my all-time favorites, though. I call it the rub-a-dub-dub three animals in the tub Noah's Ark. What's missing from the rub-a-dub-dub Noah's Ark? Noah. It's the rub-a-dub-dub wish Noah were here Ark. Right? How many, how many uh, animals are you on board the wash tub Ark? Uh, looks like there's six. That's pretty much it. Do you see Noah's Ark there? Did Noah's Ark have a rooster on the roof? But that one can't be Noah's Ark anyway. Why? There are no giraffes sticking out the top. You see Noah's Ark here. Every one of those images, the source we got them from, said those were Noah's Ark. This is a tough crowd. Well, let me ask you this question. Was Noah's Ark a big boat or a little boat? That's a big boat. And it says Noah's Ark on the bottom. So it's got to be Noah's Ark. Did Noah's Ark have windows all up and down the hull? Were the animals looking out? If the animals were looking out, what would the animals see? Water. You look out once, you've pretty much seen it all, right? So Noah's Ark was, well, how did Noah know how to build the ark? He must have gotten information from somewhere. Where did he get his information? God. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. The breadth of it, 50 cubits, and the height of it, 30 cubits. Man, that's great. That sounds all Bible-y, doesn't it? What's a cubit? <laughs> Last time I was at Home Depot, I was you know, where's the cubit section, right? I mean, what is a cubit? The cubit. Tip of the elbow to here. The average is 18 inches. That's the one we tend to use because it makes the math easy. Cubits that you've been used throughout history have been anywhere from like 16 and a quarter inches to just short of 21 inches. So, I mean, there have been various types of cubits used. But when we talk about cubits, we just use 18 inches because it makes the math easy. Again, if you come to see the Ark Encounter, what you're going to see is something that looks like that. Is that Noah's Ark? Yes. Now, do we know Noah's Ark looked like that? No, there's no way we can know. Now, we do know that certain people groups that lived very shortly after the flood that were seagoing or shipbuilding cultures inside, very frequently you'd see hull forms like this. You'll have the sail or some people call it a vein on the back and a little protrusion in the front. I think it's called a skeg. Because what you find is if you do 
uh, wave and, and, and wind and current studies on this, you find that this uh, hull form is actually much more stable than other types of hull forms. Now, in the past, we had illustrated the arc like that, or this is the way we'd imagine it. Now, this is a cutaway view, so you can see the inside, but could the arc have looked like that? Absolutely, we don't know. It could have been squared off on the end. Absolutely. This is the more traditional way that people have thought about the arc. You know, probably over the last 35 years, this is the more common hull design that you see. And when we actually showed people that this was our conception of the arc, we actually had people stop supporting our ministry. Because they said the arc is obviously squared off on the ends. Now, when we asked them to show us where obviously that's written down, they didn't because that's just what they'd been taught. But this is what you're going to see when you come to the Ark Encounter. But if your conception of the Ark is, I have no problem with that because we admit we're taking some artistic license because we don't absolutely know. We have some reasons for that, but we don't present it as absolute. But the thing is, this is what you're going to see. And I don't care what kind of great camera you have, until you're standing there looking at that thing, you cannot wrap your mind around it. I mean, I've been out to the ark probably a hundred times. All sorts of different things we have to do out there. And every time I go out there, I just go, man, that thing is humongous. And even, you know, even from here, it is it's unimaginable. You just it's like, wow, this is just fabulous. wonder what group of nutcases built this, you know. It looks like that. Again, that's a big vessel. Do you see any giraffe sticking out the top? And again, whichever way you want to visualize it, I don't have a problem as long as we honor God's Word. We're given certain information in God's Word about the ark. Everything we've done at the ark encounter, everything we did, everything we did, every, we tested it against the Word of God. Admittingly, some, some, we had to fill in some information, but we did our very best not to in any way do anything that God's Word, you know, didn't give us at least instructions about. Facts about Noah's Ark. 437 to 510 feet long. 73 to 86 feet wide. 44 to 54 feet high. It is not a toy boat with a giraffe sticking out the top. It is a football field and a half long. It's twice as long as a 747. It's huge. You know that Noah's Ark had three stories, had three decks. Here's a question for you. If you're Noah and his family, which deck you want to live on? Everybody says the top. Now, to me, that presents certain problems. If you're living on the top deck, you're going to be running up and down the steps an awful lot taking care of those animals. You will get your cardio workout. I get that. But that's a lot of running up and down. Why would you not want to live underneath the hippopotamuses and the elephants? It stinks. I think stinks is a very gracious way to put it. I think that would be a particularly miserable way to live. And I would, you know, not want to live there. That's what everybody says. You don't want to live underneath hippopotamuses and the elephants because animals, they do things. And, uh, and, and those things cause problems. And that is, in fact, the number one question I've gotten over the years about Noah's Ark. And I know I'm in church, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it. They say, Dr. Mitchell, how did they get rid of the poop? <clears throat> Which is not a word you hear from the pulpit a lot. I, realize. I mean, how did you get, because you would want to get that stuff off the boat, right? How did you get rid of the poop? Well, guess what? That's one of the things that we answer at the Ark Encounter, because that's what the skeptical secular say. Well, how did you get rid of all the waste products? We have a way to do it. And one of the ways you get rid of the waste material involves a whole lot of water. 
where would Noah get a whole lot of water? <laughs> Answer, everywhere. These are not hard questions. But okay, so you, so you want to live on the top deck. You don't want to live on the hippopotamuses and the elephants. Genesis 6, 14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shall thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. There were actually rooms in Noah's ark. And I can prove it. Here's an actual photograph from Noah's ark. Don't laugh. So far, I'm the only person who hasn't claimed to have found it. And I'm kind of surprised since I've been here, somebody hasn't brought me the, like the, a web address to show me where somebody they know has found it. There have been something like 77 or 78 different ark sightings that we've you know, accumulated over the years. Not a single one of those has ever been able to be verified. Everybody that claims they found Noah's ark, when people go back to try to find it, they can't find it. Noah's ark has not been found. But we know certain information from Scripture, and I'm good with that. It says there were rooms in Noah's ark. And if you think about that, it makes sense because, you know, farms and stables, you know, places where they raise animals or care for animals, very commonly will have stalls or cribs or pens or cages, you know, for the animals. And, and if you think about the ark, it makes sense. Does it make sense? I mean, I know God's Word says there were rooms. Does it make sense that there would be rooms on the ark? Yes. Okay. Now that everybody, pretty much everybody would agree with that. Now, I'm going to ask the following question, and I'm absolutely counting on somebody getting it wrong because everywhere I go, somebody gets it wrong. Now, when I ask the question, I want you to just yell out your answer. Now, if you're the one that yells out the wrong answer, please do not be embarrassed because 95% of the people in this room have the same question. You're just the only one that's brave enough to ask it. So do not be because you've just joined a very non-exclusive club. So here's the issue. There were rooms in Noah's Ark. It makes sense to us there were rooms in Noah's Ark. Why would you want rooms in Noah's Ark? Okay, the animals keep them from running around. Okay. Why, why would you want to separate them? That's the wrong answer. I was getting nervous. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and that's the answer I always get, to keep the animals from attacking or eating each other. Would the animals on Noah's Ark be eating each other? No. If the animals on Noah's Ark were eating each other, how many animals would get off Noah's Ark? One. And it would be really fat. Because it would have eaten everything else, right? I submit that the animals on Noah's Ark were not eating each other. They were not a danger to Noah and his family. I mean, if the T-Rex, you know, on the Ark was a danger to Noah and his family, who's Noah going to send to feed it? I mean, his mother-in-law's not on the boat. He doesn't have a lot of options here, right? No, in the beginning, when God looked at his creation and said it was very good, God gave man and the animals plants to eat. Now, did Noah have to go out and gather these animals? No, God led them to Noah. I'm going to submit that God led to Noah animals that were still obeying that direction, that were still eating plants only, that the people and the animals on the ark were eating plants. Because it says, you know, Noah take two of every kind of land animal, seven of some on the ark, right? Is that what it says? Two of every kind of land animal, seven of some? Yeah, that's what it says. Two of every kind of land animal, seven of some. Did it say two of every kind of land animal, seven of some, and some sheep to feed the T-Rex? No. So the animals on the ark would not be eating each other. They would not be a danger to each other or to Noah and his family. Plants only. Now, having said that, here's the thought question for you. Were some animals at the time of the flood already carnivorous? Had some animals become carnivorous at the time of the flood or, be or before? Okay. Prove your answer. 
That's the right answer, fossils. We have, we have you know, fossil specimens in sediment that we think are flood sediment that have parts of other creatures in their tummy. So some animals at the time of the flood had become, but just because maybe you found a saber-toothed cat or something, not every one of that particular kind, maybe they didn't all become carnivorous at once. So, you know, maybe if a T-Rex had eaten some other kind of animal, I would say the ones on the ark were still eating plants, but we have evidence that animals had become carnivorous before the flood. Whether people had become carnivorous, we don't know. But, you know, man's mind was on evil continuously, so don't tell what people were doing at that time. But nonetheless, it makes sense there would be rooms on the ark, but not to keep the animals from eating each other. I mean, you keep the animals separated based on what types of plants and things they might eat. So when you're dividing the workload and you go to the storage area and you bring things up, you know, these groups of animals here may eat certain types of plants. You keep certain animals separated because certain animals may have been hibernating during at least part of the voyage. And you keep the other animals from just waking them up. Plus, just as you build the, the rooms, just the structure of the rooms on the inside is going to keep the thing from torquing. It's going to make the structure more stable. So there are lots of reasons you'd want rooms in Noah's Ark, but not the reason that people you know, initially think of. This is a photograph of the inside of one of the Ark models we have had at the museum for a number of years. Because we've got engineers and scientists that we work with for years that have helped us kind of understand how you can build wooden structures that are very stable. Because what the secular world says, you can't build a 500-foot-long wooden boat. Yeah, you can. You just got to know how to do it. And the thing is, the boat had to stay afloat, right? Because not only animals on board, there are people on board. The total volume of the vessel, oops, if I get my water to work right. Total volume of the vessel was 1,400,000 cubic feet, roughly the equivalent of 522 railroad boxcars. The thing was a floating warehouse. It was not a toy boat with a giraffe sticking out the top. And again, these are not Noah's Ark. They've actually done hydrodynamic studies of, of different hull forms. In other words, what I mean is that they've subjected different hull forms to winds and currents and waves and things. It's like, you know, when you design a new rocket or a new kind of jet airplane, they put them in wind tunnels to test them. As I understand, even NASCAR does. I'm not really a car guy, but as they make changes in NASCAR, they put these things in wind tunnels to test them, which I think is really cool. Well, they've done similar things to different types of hull forms of all different types of vessels. And you know what the engineers have found? Noah's Ark was more than capable of completing the voyage for which it was intended. Now, how did we already know that? Because we're here. Because when I got up this morning and looked in the mirror, I saw somebody. You know, if the Ark goes down, we're not here. It's a floating warehouse. Like I say, the first big wave that hits that boat with the giraffe sticking out the top, you got a huge problem. And so do those giraffes. Because last time I checked, giraffes don't breathe well underwater. They better hope evolution's true and they turn into fish really quickly. And again, if you believe in a local flood, I can't help you. Yeah. Was there room for all the animals on Noah's Ark? Absolutely. And again, that's one of the things the secular world throws at me all the time as I travel. There's no way you can get millions of animals on Noah's Ark. You don't need millions of animals. You need two of each kind, seven of some. In the past, our worst case scenario was 16 to 18,000 individual animals. Now, what has happened over the years as we've, as we've done our research, as we've proceeded with the Ark Encounter Project, what we found is there are far fewer kinds of animals than we originally thought. There are probably only about 1,400 kinds of animals. So there's probably, the number on the Ark is probably going to be like more like five to 7,000. But the thing is, worst case is 18,000 animals. 
need two of each kind, seven of some, which means you don't need 262 variety of dogs. You need what? Two dogs. Now, when the ark lands and the animals get off, what are these dogs supposed to do? They're supposed to multiply. They're supposed to make more dogs. So you start off with two dogs, and these dogs get off the ark, and they reproduce, and their offspring are what? These are not hard questions, folks. Work with me. When dogs reproduce, they have dogs. Okay. And when those dogs reproduce, their offspring are what? And when those dogs reproduce, their offspring are what? And this goes on and on and on, right? And pretty soon you have what? Lots of dogs. Is this evolution? No, it's just what? Dogs. Don't overthink this. But you start off with two dogs. You get all these different varieties of dogs. How does this happen? Well, there are many factors. The most commonly understood uh, idea is called natural selection. <gasps> you can't say natural selection. You believe in the Bible. You don't believe in real science. Well, you know something? Natural selection was first described as a concept by a creationist named Edward Blythe about 20 years before Darwin wrote Origin of the Species. Darwin had Blythe's writings in his own personal library. And this is how it works. It's not a hard concept. Let's just say you have all these dogs after the ark landed, and a group of dogs wander north. They do better if they have what? Long fur or short fur? What happens if they have short fur? They freeze to death and they die. What if another group says, well, I don't want to go north. You know, it's cold up there. I want to go south. Those dogs do better if they have long fur or short fur? What happens if they have long fur? <laughs> they get too hot and they don't reproduce well and they die. What happens if a group of dogs wander to the forest? They do better if they have light-colored fur or dark-colored fur. What happens if they have light-colored fur? They get eaten, and they can't sneak up on anything, right? Think of this. Think of a polar bear in the Smokies. You get the idea, right? Polar bears do better in the Arctic. They don't do as well in the Smokies. They can't sneak up on anything, and they get eaten. You see, there are physical characteristics that give certain creatures a survival benefit in certain environments. You know, in heavily forested area, dark fur and in warmer climates, it's shorter fur. And these are general rules. And again, I'm not suggesting that natural selection is the only process that applies here. There's founder effect. There's genetic drift. There are a lot of the genetic factors that go on. But I don't want to give you a two-hour lecture on genetics. So just understand certain characteristics give creatures a survival benefit in a certain environment. Now, does it work this way? You know, mommy and daddy dog, okay, honey, we're going to move to the forest. We need to start having puppies that have short legs, pointed ears, and dark fur. Is that the way it works? No, you get what you get. Whatever combination you get, those creatures that, that have the, the, the preferred you know, physical characteristics in those environments tend to pass those on more efficiently to the subsequent generation. So you have changes in these dogs and cats and cows that get off the ark. The thing about dogs and cats and cows that change, you know what they change into? They change into dogs and cats and cows. But you get what we call, you know, variation within the kind. Dogs stay dogs, cows stay cows, turtles stay turtles. But you get variation because God in his infinite wisdom put the maximum amount of genetic material in the original created kinds, knowing they're going to have to adapt to all these different environments in a fallen, cursed world. The median size of the animals on the ark would be about the size of a rat. Only 10% would have been larger than a sheep. You know, most animals aren't very big. One railroad car holds 240 sheep. So the ark could hold 125,280 sheep. Using only one deck, you can hold 40,000 animals. Now, again, that's assuming our worst-case scenario. If you only got five to 7,000 animals, you don't even need a full deck. Now, you're also here assuming that all these animals are the size of sheep, and only 10% would have been that large. 
guess what, folks? This is not a problem at all. Like I say, when people get to the ark encounter, they get off the bus, they take one look at the vessel. I don't have any problem understanding how you get all the animals on anymore. Frankly, as I've thought about this over the years, my question is not, Lord, how'd you get all the animals on board? My question is, why'd you make it so big? I mean, there's more than enough room. See, the remaining room could be used for living space, food, supplies, because you're going to need lots of supplies. Remember, you're going to need supplies that have to last for many months after the floodwaters recede because it's going to take a while for the plants and things to regrow. So it's not just for the time of the flood. It's for some significant time after. Now, you really want to get laughed at? Here's your question. Were there dinosaurs on the ark? I say yes, but if there are dinosaurs on the ark, you've got a couple of problems, right? First of all, how do you get them through the door? (laughs) Some dinosaurs are 135 feet long. I mean, what do you do? Do you like butter their head and push? I mean, how do you do that? You like WD-40 and you take a run and start? And the thing is, once you get them through the door, you got to get them back off. And the thing is, we know how silly that is, but that's exactly what the secular world thinks we believe. Again, as I speak at colleges and universities, I've been challenged on this particular question. Well, Tommy, first of all, it's ridiculous. You believe this fairy tale about Noah's Ark. Would you actually believe there were dinosaurs on Noah's Ark? That's ridiculous. Isn't it funny how the world tells us what, that what we believe is ridiculous and then what they say we believe isn't even what we believe? They believe we're putting 100-foot-long dinosaurs on a toy houseboat. This is nonsense. But we do have answers to this question. Now, the thing is, we were not standing there watching the animals, you know, board Noah's Ark. Is there any way we can absolutely determine the answer to this question? Absolutely, we can. It's real easy. Where do we turn for that answer? The Bible. Your first question. Were the land animals made on day six? What else was made on day six? Did people and dinosaurs walk the earth together? See how easy this is, folks? These are not hard questions. Are dinosaurs land animals? Yes. Okay. I've heard the answer some, and I will accept that answer. And this is why. When I was little, you know, about a thousand years ago, we didn't know a lot back then, not as much as we do now. But anyway, when I was little, when we used the word dinosaurs, we talked about the land animals, the seagoing reptiles, and the flying reptiles. We just used the word dinosaur as an all-encompassing term. And that's technically not correct because the seagoing reptiles and the flying reptiles and the, and the land reptiles, they have, a very distinctly, they have distinctly different you know, body structures and things. But when I was little and we talked about dinosaurs, we just you know, included all those creatures in that term. But you got to remember, too, when I was little, Pluto was still a planet. <laughs> Anybody here think Pluto should still be a planet? See, I think it's the tackiest thing in science. You get to be a planet for like 50 years, then a group of scientists go to the Bahamas and they take a vote and say, well, you can't be a planet anymore. <laughs> you can actually go to the internet and sign a petition to make Pluto a planet again. I encourage you all to do that. I've actually told our astronomer at the ministry, next time he goes to that conference, you tell him Tommy said to make Pluto a planet or I'm never going to speak to them again. But anyway, that, that's free. But anyway, if you said some, that some dinosaurs were land animals, I would accept that. But technically, dinosaurs are just land animals. Did Noah take two of every kind of land animal, seven of some, on board the ark? Yes. Were the dinosaurs on the ark? Yes. See how hard this is? This is really easy. Now, how did dinosaurs reproduce? How did they have babies? Eggs. How do you know that? You ever seen a dinosaur lay an egg? Fossils of what? The eggs, that's the answer. What's inside those eggs? Fossilized baby dinosaurs. We've got fossilized dinosaur eggs of a variety of different types of dinosaurs. And I think it's really cool. How big is a T-Rex egg? 
It's about the size of a football. I had a kid a few months ago tell me it was the size of a Volkswagen. I don't know about you, but I'd pay a quarter to see a creature lay an egg the size of a Volkswagen. I mean, Waffle House ever gets hold of an egg that big, we all, got wa- we all got omelets from now on, right? We're in good shape. But the thing is, a T-Rex egg is about this big. So the point is, before you have a big dinosaur, you got a what? A little dinosaur. So think about this. Is God going to leave fully grown dinosaurs to Noah that are already far into their reproductive years? Or say the young adults that have many, many more years left to lay eggs and reproduce and repopulate. I would argue that it's the young adults. So a T-Rex wouldn't have been, you know, 15 feet tall when it was, you know, on the earth. Maybe it's only six or seven feet tall when it came into its reproductive age. Like we understand reptiles in our world today, you know, and alligator doesn't have to be 10 feet long before it can start laying eggs. We just need to think it through. Because, folks, again, if you take a stand for Jesus Christ in this culture, you're going to get questions like this. Scripture says be ready with an answer. Now, this whole idea, this whole concept of the ark was very important because this planet was about to be completely covered in water. Well, Tommy, well, we, we've, we've done all these calculations and stuff. Your Bible says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. There's no way the atmosphere could hold enough water to flood the planet. What's our response to that? We agree. Where'd the water come from? The same day where all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were open. I'm going to give you the simplified flood model. Now, I know there are different creation geologists have different models of the pre-flood world, and you've got to understand these are just models because we don't have a lot of information about the pre-flood world. We have the world that we see today, and we're trying to make assumptions. We're trying to build models about the past, but understand these are just models. So I'm not going to go any particular, you know, Dr. So-and-so or this person, you know, any nuance of it. This is just sort of the basic idea. If you take the earth and smooth it down like a ping-pong ball or a billiard ball, there's enough water to cover the surface of the earth for a level of about two miles. Can you drown in two miles of water? Yep, no problem. You can drown in two miles of water. We would also argue that in the pre-flood world, most, most likely... And most, most people agree with this, that all, that, that all the land was in, like one land mass. It says all the water's gathered together in one place, so it makes sense that all the land was together in one place. Now, this is where it gets kind of tricky because different creation geologists have different views of what that land, the shape of the land mass and things, and I'm not going to get into those because, you know, you've seen those computer models where you take all the continents and put them back together. Well, there are a couple of different ways you can make that work, but nonetheless, it makes sense there was one land mass. So the great fountains of the deep start breaking open, and you have all this water coming up from underneath the Earth's crust, and you have these erosion surfaces. There's a lot of particulate matter in the air and sediment on a, on a scale that we can't even wrap our minds around. It just basically remodeled the surface of the Earth. And as you have the fountains of the deep breaking open, you have the, the, these plates that start moving apart. And when they start moving apart, sometimes they start banging together. And when they start banging together, they push mountain ranges up. I mean, it's called the catastrophic plate tectonics model. And the thing is, that would really account for the things that we see in our world today, such as this. This is what? The Grand Canyon. <coughs> now, you see those rock layers? They're obviously millions of years old.
So it obviously takes millions of years, right? So either a whole lot of time and a little bit of water cause those rock layers or a whole lot of water and a little bit of time. And again, it's like if you look around the, around the world, just look at the surface of the earth, it, like it just screams there was a catastrophe. Like you can go to the Grand Canyon, which is one of my favorite places. If you ever get a chance to go to the Grand Canyon, you really need to go. It's one of my favorite places to preach and have Bible study. Just look around and just imagine, you know, God's judgment. And his promise of salvation it is really amazing place to be. But you go and you look at these rock layers that are obviously millions of years old. At least that's what the secularists say. And there's a couple of side canyons you can walk down. And you see these layers of sedimentary rock. And they just go down, you know, for miles. And you see these rock layers. And all of a sudden, this one place, the rock layers do something funny. They do this, and then they turn up. Anybody here tried to bend a rock lately? How'd that work out for you? Not well, huh? You know, you can bend sedimentary rock, but you have to do two things to it. You have to heat it and put it under pressure. And when you do that, it changes actually the structure of the rock. It metamorphoses, if you will. The thing is, you can go down this area here, and you can take rock samples, and it's unchanged. Those rock layers were folded while they were soft. Does rock stay soft for 400 million years? No. The only thing that makes sense here, this, was, this rock was laid down and, it was, and an upheaval or an uplift happened and bent the rock layers while it was soft at the time of the flood. And to show you how thick these rocks are, those are people right there. Now, is there any reason to think there was a global catastrophic cataclysmic flood? Absolutely. I mean, you see things like this. Another example I like to use is uh, Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the highest point on earth, right? What, like 29,000 feet? Now, we've talked about the flood being a global event that covered everything, but there's only enough water to cover the surface of the earth for a level of like two miles. So how do you cover Mount Everest? Well, it's simple. It wasn't there in the pre-flood world. We would argue that the topography in the pre-flood world was more moderate, and that you have mountain building as a result of all this tectonic activity. Again, is there any reason to believe that? Absolutely. Because like I said, if you go uh, up on the slopes of Mount Everest and you dig down in the ground, what do you find? What kind of fossils? Marine fossils, you find fossils of sea creatures. And on one of my Grand Canyon trips a couple of years ago, I was talking to one of the well, as a secular geologist that was on the trip with us. And he was, you know, Tommy, these rocks are obviously millions of years old, and your Bible's not true, and obviously this and obviously that. And I was doing my best to you know, talk to him and witness to him. And one night we're sitting around, and I said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, sure, ask me. I said, what about Mount Everest? He said, what about it? And I said, what about the marine fossils on the slopes of Mount Everest? And I will never forget his answer. He looked at me just as serious and said, well, Tommy, it looks to me like at one point it was underwater. <laughs> and I said, you think? Of course, he didn't have any explanation for it, but it's like the surface of the earth just screams there was a catastrophe. But the secular world says, no, these rock layers are obviously millions of years old, like these rock layers, which were obviously millions of years old or six hours old, which we actually saw when Mount St. Helens erupted. It's six hours less than a million years. That was laid down in about 30 minutes. Now, if there was a global cataclysm, you know, the great fountains of the deep break open, the worst cataclysm the world's ever seen, sedimentation on a global cataclysmic catastrophic scale, burying billions of creatures suddenly in unimaginable amounts of sediment. If you go around the world and dig down in the ground, what are you going to find? Fossils. You can find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. You're going to find fossils. This is a what? 
fish fossil. How does a fish become a fossil? This is what I was taught in high school. Fish dies, sinks to the bottom, slowly gets covered by sediment, becomes a fossil. Now, I remember being very puzzled by this when I was in high school because I remember thinking, what if you had a dead T-Rex and it had a heart attack out on the prairie somewhere and it just fell over? How long would it take a T-Rex to slowly get buried? And also, at the time that I was taught this, I remember my sister had an aquarium. And if her guppy died, it didn't go to the bottom. It went where? Goes to the top. And out in the world, it gets scavenged. It rot. Any chance this fish becomes a fossil? No. Let's just say you have a dead cat, which, like I say, the best kind of cat is, in fact, a dead cat. But nonetheless, let's just say you have a dead cat, and you've decided you'd like to have a fossil cat. How do you turn that cat into a fossil? Well, what you do is you put a sign up out back, scientific experiment project in progress, do not touch, and you wait for your cat to become a fossil. Now, being a good scientist, we know this is going to take some time. It's not going to happen overnight. So you let the experiment go to completion. It goes on and on and on, and you got a problem here. You see where we're headed, and then it got a bigger problem, and then you got almost nothing, and then your cat's gone. How come this cat didn't turn into a fossil? It rotted. It did exactly what you think would happen. So how does something become a fossil? Well, here's a fish having a good day. Here's this good day coming to an end. Here's a pre-fossil. Here's a fossil. How come that fish got to be a fossil and that poor cat just rotted and we don't have no, no cat fossil, no way, no how? What's the difference? Fish got buried rapidly and catastrophically before it could deteriorate, before it could rot. Here's, a, here's a, a fish eating another fish. Now, you got one or two choices. Either this fish was eating the other fish, choked, had a heart attack, sank to the bottom, slowly got covered by sediment, or something buried this fish rapidly and catastrophically right in the middle of lunch hour. I'll let you decide which of those makes more sense. Here's a fish trapped in sediment suddenly in the process of giving birth. The fossil record screams rapid burial. We would argue that the vast majority of what we call the fossil record is on the basis of the sediment from the flood. Certainly not all, because there has been some post-flood catastrophism and post-flood fossilization, but the majority of the fossils that we see are on the basis of the sediment from the flood of Noah's day. And remember what Scripture says, be ready always to give an answer.
Well, folks, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Whoever's in charge of this train, I'm going to turn it over to the boss. There's got to be an adult in charge somewhere. Because I know it's not me. All right. Yeah. <laughs> we 